Oh yeah, Duncan Green here with uh, a roundup of this week's posts on From Poverty to Power. Um, there'll be a break next week because I am walking in the Cotswolds in the west of England. Um, it's very beautiful. It'll be the autumn leaves. And I just looked at the weather forecast and it's going to rain every single day. So it's going to be a proper English holiday. Uh, so I won't be here next week. I'll be back um, to dry out the week after. On with the show. Um, five posts this week, as usual. First one was my uh, customary Monday links I liked. A um, couple of things I'd pull out there. One is a really interesting piece in uh, from the Overseas Development Institute, the ODI, on um, is the whole idea of fragility past its sell-by date. So there's a lot of attention to fragile states. They became, then people started pointing out that, you know, it's not whole states and there's bits of fragility in otherwise stable states. And so they became fragile settings and fragile contexts. And, you know, when the name of something changes that often, then it may indicate the, an underlying weakness in the idea. And I think ODI is calling it and saying, Actually, although there's an enormous amount of attention to these places and they are undoubtedly important, messy, conflict-driven places where the state doesn't function, just having a sort of bi a binary of fragile and non-fragile isn't terribly helpful. Which is a bit awkward because I was on the reference group for the OECD States of Fragility report, uh, which has just come out. But um, I still think it's an interesting challenge and something we're going to have to look at next year. Um, the second was, I have an amazing colleague at the LSE called Naila Kabir, a Bangladeshi economist who takes no prisoners. And she has a piece um, on women's empowerment and economic development, a feminist critique of storytelling practices in random Easter economics. And she's basically produces a forensic critique of Esther Duflo's work um, following Duflo getting the Nobel Prize last year. And the thing about Naila is she absolutely knows the literature uh, in particular on India, which is where a lot of Duclos cases are taken. So she can say, oh, she's picked out this piece of literature and ignored this piece of literature. Why is that? So a really, if you're, if you're interested in the critique of the random Easters who are very much flavor of the moment uh, in, 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 in economics and in the aid world, have a look at Nyla's piece. It, it's, 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 it's very powerful. Second post of the week, um, voices from the pandemic front lines. Health worker protests and proposals from 84 countries by um, Jennifer Johnson from the Accountability Research Center in Washington. Um, it's a project called the Health Worker Protest Project, uh, which is, is, is one of a growing number of repositories which uh, squirrel together all the, uh, all the stuff that's been published on health worker protests. And they've got uh, material on 84 countries, 600 reports, which they share constantly. Now, what you're seeing at the moment is a lot of these repositories and people without the time to actually read it all and process it, which is very much what we're trying to do in the Emergent Agency project, uh, which I've talked about in previous weeks. So this was, um, so the kind of things they're finding, and although she says it's, it's supposed to be about um, uh, protests and proposals, it's very much about protests mainly. So they're finding uh, real problems on PPE, uh, personal protective equipment, lots of violence, not just from the police against health worker protests, but against the public who see health workers as sources of contagion. New forms of protest. I was particularly intrigued by the naked doctor protests in Argentina, France and Germany, um, where health workers are posing nude on social media as an allegory 
for how vulnerable and unprotected they are on the front lines without adequate PPE. So there's something we can think about. Um, so yeah, all in all, a very useful summary of an enormous upsurge in health worker protests, but a lot still to be done in terms of trying to work out what it all means, whether it's going to change health systems, whether it's going to change attitudes, what, what the long-term legacy will be. Third piece of the week, um, I, always, I thought was going to do well, and it did. People who read this blog love aid, uh, talk discussions on aid and adaptive management and you know, strategy and all those things, and they love listicles. Five things you should know about this, 10 things you should do about that. So I did an aid listicle, and sure enough, it, it, it went massive. So th this one was on common mistakes when NGOs start strategizing. Clickbait for the aid sector. Um, and it's a series of conversations with Oxfam Intamon and others in recent weeks where the same subjects keep coming up. And when that happens, I tend to think, OK, that's probably worth a blog. So this one, these five common mistakes. Um, number one, putting yourselves at the center of everything. So you don't start with how is the political situation changing, what's going on in the country. You very much say it's all about us. What do we do? You know, and, and that, that means you don't spend nearly enough time on what I call the theory of change, which is how is the context changing on something like women's rights or, or um, you know, access to markets or whatever it is. You want to know how the context is changing first. So you need a theory of change about what's driving change or blocking it. And then you get onto your theory of action. What do we as a small player do? But people always go straight for the second bit and, and therefore they're not thinking enough about the context and what's changing. Um, second one is thinking you're more important than you really are. I think this is partly a sort of the only way activists get out of bed in the morning is by thinking they can really make a difference. Sometimes you just have to accept that you're a very small player with much bigger players in the system. And why that matters is because you may not therefore want to go and work where all the big work guys are working. You may want to identify a niche, um, think about a different role, like, you know, convening all the big players to talk to each other. Be aware of your size. It's an important part of being aware of your power um, or lack of it. Um, doing all the thinking up front. So there's a classic problem in aid is that you in order to get funding, you have to come up with a really good proposal. So people do all the thinking, all the analysis. They do all the political economy analysis all up front. And then once they get the money, they stop doing the thinking and they start acting. But actually, you can be pretty sure that however hard you think, you're not going to understand the system nearly as well as after you've been trying to engage with it for a couple of years. So you will learn as you go. Therefore, your thinking will improve. Therefore, you need to have sort of interweave think, thought and action if you're going to actually be good at what you're trying to do. Looking for a map, not a compass. You know, I believe that you need broad best guesses about what you're trying to do. And then you push off from shore and you learn as you go. But that's not always what you need to do to get funding. Not, easy, not always what you need to do for the culture of the aid sector who want to see detailed plans, everything written down, an enormous theory of change which covers every eventuality, every risk analysed. If you do that, A, it's a waste of time because it's probably wrong and it leads to a very static view of reality and you're not able to think on your feet and, and, and learn by doing. Finally, Letting doubts and preferences about your identity rule your head. You know, I'm struck that in all these conversations, people always end up saying, we've got to do more with youth. OK, the youth are fantastic. Youth have energy, dynamism. They are, you know, the future, of course. Um, but they also have 
you know, some problems as activists, as sources of change. So they don't know many people, certainly not people in power. They don't have much money. They have very volatile lives. They, you know, they, they get different jobs. They have kids. They, you know, they, they don't stick around. And so is our preference for youth partly because a bunch of aging activists want to hang with the cool kids? Or is it a, co is it a, a, a genuine political analysis that those are the drivers of change? And if you look at the other end of the age spectrum, I've said this many times, you know, there's an enormous resource which is recently retired people who have energy, contacts, money, knowledge, and all we ever do is ask them for money. Um, so are we really being analytical or are we just letting our emotions rule our heads on that? So a grumpy old man um, article which uh, people seem to like and it's, it's got done very well. Fourth post of the week. This is open access week. Every week around now in the middle of October, there is an open access week where people who believe that we, you shouldn't have to pay to read stuff um, get together and make the case. So I always made the case and it's quite handy because this is also the week when my book, How Change Happens, was published in 2016. So each week, um, each year rather during this week, I get together the sales stats and the, and the readership stats and see how it went because how change happens was open access from the word go. It was an interesting experiment. Um, we persuaded Oxford University Press, OUP, to to both publish a book, you know, a, a tree book, a book made of paper, and to publish online free at the same time. And so you can watch the figures pan out in real time. And uh, each year I see how they've gone. And it's been really interesting. Basically what happens is that the book sells you know, for the first couple of years. So gets into bookshops, gets reviewed. People think, oh, it's a new book. I'm going to buy it. So boom, you sell a few books in the first couple of years. But then from sort of year two, online takes over completely. And what you find is that people downloading the PDF or people reading it on Google Reader goes up and up and up if the book does well and gets onto course reading lists and that kind of thing. So for How Change Happens, it peaked really in year three. And after it's sort of falling back a bit now, although we're not, you know, the numbers aren't quite clear, but I think it's probably peaked in year three and will now slowly fall back. But how fast it falls back will depend on how many course reading lists and how many students are reading it, I suspect. So if you look over the whole four years, you get a really interesting ratio. Okay, For every one paper book sold, five people download the PDF and 15 people read bits of it. I'm sure very few people read the whole thing online, but read paragraphs or chapters online. So in real numbers, 10,000 books sold, 50,000 people downloaded the PDF, and 150,000 have read anything from a paragraph to a, to a chapter. Total readers, 210,000, which is great. I'm very, very happy with those numbers. The message there for any authors, whether you're writing a book, contemplating a book, is think about, uh, and publishers, is think about open access from the beginning, when you agree a deal with a publisher, ask them about open access. Will they do it? We had to waive the royalties, and that was enough to persuade OUP, but it may depend on the nature of the book. Do you have to pay for it in some cases? What do you need to do to get open access? Because especially if you're publishing in something international, like international development, it's crazy to only do it through paper copies. You know, it's so much better to have it downloadable. So I'm an evangelist for open access books as well as open access journals, which is a whole other um, can of worms. The last piece in the week was actually um, a response to a tweet. I tweeted uh, a map from The Economist, from last week's Economist, which was a summary of a paper by Freedom House in the US on what's happened to democracy since, under COVID. 
And the, the map was very striking because they found that in 80 countries around the world, democracy had deteriorated. People had lost democratic rights. And in only one, Malawi had democracy improved. Um, so I, I tweeted that and it went a bit crazy, you know, hundreds of retweets and likes and people funny comments saying, can Malawi send election observers to the US and people just it just worked with people. So so I um, so I did a bit of digging and went and did a background piece on the, uh, the last post uh, this week on the blog. And I suppose, I mean, the, the, the two things I would p- pull out from this one is the power of graphics, you know, this map, but other, I went back to the, the whole Freedom House report and it's full of really brilliant graphics. And graphics in a social media age have huge multiplier potential. So killer graphics are as important as killer facts in terms of getting your message out. Um, but the other one is, you know, I don't actually like Freedom House and I don't like the National Endowment for Democracy, which was also involved in the in the paper. You know, going in the, in the bad old days of the Cold War, they were both sort of prominent vehicles, I would say, for US foreign policy. Um, They have a particular view of democracy and rights where they prioritise individual human rights, sort of uh, political rights, and they really don't care about economic rights or social rights. They They don't do anything on collective rights. They're very much that, you know, we want elections, uh, a a sort of very narrow view of rights. And there were um, uh, and so in the, in, in the past, I've been very critical of them because I thought they were telling a very partial story. So if you, if you come across something interesting from a source you don't, don't like, what do you do? I mean, I think there's, there's a few options. One is you ignore it. Second one is you just cherry pick and say, oh, yes, I may just disapprove of the source, but I like what they say, so I'll just use it anyway. All those you know, NGO quotes that start with things like, even the IMF says this, or even the World Bank says this, I find kind of irksome. Um, or you just take a look at it and you actually do the work and go and look at the research and say, okay, it's a bit weak. This is just, you know, this particular paper was a consultation with a thousand Freedom House experts, so they will have a particular political profile. But I think the research is interesting enough and rigorous enough for it to be worth looking at. And so, you know, I think you you really do have to assess the source um, and not just say, yes, it's good or yes, it's bad based on um, you know, prejudice. Anyway, that was a bit preachy. Sorry about that. Have a great weekend. Uh, I'm off to the rain and I'll see you in a couple of weeks.